turn your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be reading the entirety of this chapter, Galatians chapter 5. As we continue our study in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we read that chapter last week, the portion that we'll be studying today, um, I want to do this corollary passage this morning, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, the entirety of this chapter, I'll be reading out the New King James Version as is my custom. God's Word declares, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. You ran well, who hindered you from obeying the truth. This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind. But he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in the past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week I told you I had really a two-part message that I was a little fearful that you might hear the one and not the other. So if you were not here last Sunday, um, you need to uh, get that message um, from Kevin and he'll have it on is that, are those C- D- CDs, not DVDs. No one's taking pictures of this. Um, or on the podcast and uh, get that access. Um, I am going to reference some of that I have to, to really build into uh, a definition 
of love out of 1 Corinthians 13. And remember, this is all couched within, uh, both before it and after it, couched within a discussion of the exercise of spiritual gifts um, and some instruction by Paul, some correction by him for the Corinthians on the proper exercise of spiritual gifts, the proper definition of what they are, uh, where they come from, what is their purpose, how should they be exercised, um, and then specifically with respect to one particular gift that we're going to study next week that was emphasized uh, wrongly by the Corinthians and became the measure of spirituality. And if I were to boil down my message last Sunday and don't think that this in any way says, well, I don't have to listen to the CD of the whole message because he just said it in a nutshell. If I boil down to my message last Sunday into one specific statement, and I don't like to do that very often, but because of the pressing nature of what I want to get to this morning, I can't spend a lot of time in review. It comes to this, that the, that the highest evidence of true biblical spirituality is love. It is not the exercise of any other spiritual gift. It is not preaching. It is not speaking in tongues for the Corinthians in this setting. It was not any of those, for all of those could be exercised outside of relationship of Christ, in fact. For men can bring themselves to teach without having the Spirit in them, and they have done that ex- extensively. In fact, in the passage we read earlier this morning in Galatians, um, that's in fact what was happening in the church. There were teachers coming in. That was not of the Spirit, for it did not reflect the truth of God's Word. It was error. Paul has some very strong words to say about them. This, these were men teaching in the church. But they weren't teaching the love of God. They were teaching the rules of men. And so, yes, you can exercise spiritual gifts in the church and not be spiritual. Because they really aren't spiritual gifts. They're really your own talent or capacities. And so, in the midst of all of this instruction, we come down to this statement that the real way of excellence in the Christian life is to live a life before men and before God and ourselves of love. That though you have every spiritual ministry and do not have love, Paul says in verse 2, you are nothing. Though you do all practical ministries, I don't know why teaching and ministering God's Word isn't considered practical, um, but we categorize it separately, of feeding the poor, of caring for those uh, circumstances, of giving up your body uh, in, in ministry. It says if you do it, out of some other motive than love, verse 3 says it profits you nothing. And so, we find that the way of excellence, the way that God wants us to minister and to function, to walk, to live, is, is defined by this word love. Now, Paul takes the next step, and this is where we want to go this morning. Now that we know that the way of excellence before God is the way of love, 
What is that? What is that? That statement? What is, you know, that we're supposed to love? That that is the excellent way that God desires of us and that is the calling card of genuine Christianity. Um, what is this love? And Paul's going to take some time here to define it um, in a series of verses that are certainly favored by many, especially around Valentine's Day for some reason. We always got to go through these. Don't understand it, but um, we think that that's the best time to study this kind of a passage. Um, and we uh, connect it to a, this romantic kind of love. And God's Word is far beyond that. This passage extends far beyond that. In fact, it almost has nothing to do with romantic love at all. So we come to verse 4, and we're going to read a portion of Scripture through verse 8 that gives us a definition from Paul's perspective by the Holy Spirit upon what it means to be loving in their Christian walk. Here we go. Verse 4, God's Word declares love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy, does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Beyond that, he's going to go back in and reference some of the other aspects that he's already talked about in terms of spiritual gifts and ministry. And we're gonna, we've already referenced that uh, in large part last week. And when we look at the mature Christian walk, we are to have this kind of love for one another. In Galatians chapter 5, we find that that is the fruit or the evidence of the Holy Spirit. And so when we talk about Holy Spirit's ministry, we really try, and in our theological studies, we categorize the work of the Spirit in His uh, pre-salvific, salvific, and post-salvific work. And in the post-salvific, we divide that into the fruit of the Spirit and the, and the gifts of the Spirit. And we distinguish them perhaps too strongly, in my mind. Um, but we have this listing of the fruit of the Spirit is love. That is the evidence, the fruit that there's a vitality there, that there's something growing there's some work going on. That's what fruit evidence is. Uh, it is the product of His presence. And the product of the Spirit's presence is uh, top of the list in Galatians 5.22 is love. And of course, Paul in Galatians has extensively talked about that that is the perimeter of the Christian walk. He has, throughout the book of Galatians, tried to present a, a case for liberty. And he has set one perimeter around Christian liberty, and that is love. And it is the perimeter not only upon our liberty, it is the perimeter upon our ministry as well. And that is the context of Corinthians. That when we look at how can we minister, it must be infused by and bounded by love. And it is incumbent now to define it and to give good definitions, Paul does what is necessary, and that is both to tell us what it is, to tell us what it isn't, and tell us how it works. So we're going to have a full definition of it today. I grew up and uh, was confronted very early in my 
uh, young adulthood, teen years, with a uh, working definition of love as an unconditional commitment to an imperfect something else or someone else. An unconditional commitment, that is, no matter what they do, I'm committed to their benefit. I, all of who I am and what I have is available and it will be poured out for their care. That it is a decision, not an emotion, not a feeling. And uh, Paul's going to take some steps here to talk about what this commitment is, what it looks like, and what it is not. But I find that we have so muddied, really putrefied, the waters of this word, of this term love, that we're going to have to spend a lot more time, as Paul did here, telling ourselves and reminding ourselves what love is not. Because our world has taken this term and run with it and abused it. And to some degree, we, have, we, we, we need to get back maybe to some old English words like charity, but even that's been abused now, and charity means giving stuff away, and so I'm a charitable organization or whatever. Um, so we can't even use that old English word uh, the Greeks had several words for love, uh, and we do too. We have words like compassion and, and, and uh, things along that line. So we do have some other options. But we come to this, and we really need to take this term and extract it from the way we've been using it in our vocabulary, in our conversation. Oh, I love your dress. Oh, I love your hairdo. Oh, I love chocolate. And we have used this word to the point of abuse. And it becomes meaningless. And Paul here is very careful in making sure that we wrap our minds around biblical terminology of what is love. And what we are going to find here is that love's focus is not on itself. It's not on the one that is the possessor of it. In fact, it calls upon that one to sacrifice. And every one of these terms at some point or another is going to draw us to a point of humility and sacrifice. That that is real evidence of love. Not, not just bubbling over and, and gushing on somebody. Um, and oh, that, they must really love them. Look at how they act. No, we're going to see some of these other evidences that the world might even confuse as being unloving. Because the world is convinced that love is something other than what God has declared it to be. And so we begin right away with the first term and we are already confronted immediately by something that we don't like. Because love, it says, the next word is suffers in my Bible. <laughs> love suffers long. And we can water this down and say, well, it's just patient. Um, but the idea here is that it is an enduring sacrifice. That genuine, biblical, godly love is in it for the long haul. And this is where we get the no matter what, the unconditionality of biblical love. That it is going to be tested, but it will suffer all that testing and press on. It can be stretched to the extreme and it will hold, it will stand, it will not break. And this is connected directly with the final statement that he has about love is that love never fails. 
Because once I have emptied myself of my interests and have put uh, within my heart the interests of others that I have uh, directed my biblical love toward, now, um, what can they do? If I've emptied myself of my own interests, how can they damage me any more than I've damaged myself? And again, Christ is our example. Who emptied himself, Philippians chapter 2 tells us, and became a servant. Uh, he just emptied himself. That here is one who thought equality with God was nothing to be grasped. It's something he possessed. Always has. And yet he emptied himself entirely that he might minister to others. And when others reject him and, and deny him, crucify him, he can still on that cross say, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they've done. Well, how can he make that declaration given the extent of their rejection of him? Because he already emptied himself fully. And therefore, he could only see in their rejection the results that it would be upon them, not what they were doing to him. This is why love doesn't fail. This is why love is capable of suffering long, is because love is not considering its own interests, but singularly and entirely the interests of others. It is selfless. We're going to study tonight the... Uh, get into an area of study about the end times regarding sin and one of the primary sins that we're going to see, uh, not just out in the world, it's, sin's always been out there. And the place we look for sin in terms of end time signs is right inside the church. And among the top of them is lovers of themselves. That is one of the most penetrating accusations, indictments against the church in the end times, they'll be lovers of themselves. They will lose track entirely of this kind of long-suffering, non-failing love for others that is originated from God, and they will buy into the self-love that is originated in the wickedness of men's hearts. Why can love suffer so much and endure? Only because it is ready to be sacrificed entirely and therefore it will not fail. It will give up its life for others and therefore to give up other things to be rejected and yet love. To be treated cruelly and yet love. To be abused and yet love. Is born out of a decision to empty oneself for others. And this Christ has done for us. He who knew no sin became our sin. I still don't fully appreciate that. That a holy, holy, holy God would be willing to take on my sin. To become my sin. That I might 
take on His righteousness. And this presses us as we consider God's love for us is that how much are we going to add to Christ's sufferings by our sin? When we see love really in action, this unconditional commitment that I am going to sacrifice myself entirely if necessary upon others. And there have been examples that we have seen throughout society that generally we try to elevate and, and talk about that. That And, and we, a lot of times on the battlefield they'll talk about you know that they're willing to go out there and give their lives for the things they love, their family, their country, their fellow soldiers, things like that. And we elevate that. But when we see love exercised, um, and we see the recipient of that love scorn it. It still makes us angry, doesn't it? To see someone who is the recipient of a sacrificial act by another and then to just throw it away and consider it lightly and to tread all over it, to spit upon it, and we say, oh, they deserve whatever. They become arch enemy, don't they? When we see this example of sacrificial love and then the people respond who are the recipients of the benefits of that to mistreat that gift that they have been given and we look at them and we say, oh, they are so wicked. But brethren, we are those people. You see, we often want to identify ourselves with the people who have sacrificially given, but more often than not, in the economy of God, we are at the other end of the spectrum, for we are the recipients of the highest love and the greatest sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and we spurn it. We cause it to suffer longer. We cause it to be pressed to its, to its breaking point, but then we discover there's no breaking point. And then we wonder why God's judgment waits. Oh, it waits. It's coming. And that is not a failure of love. It is the conclusion when one rejects genuine love. And so my love is not measured by its acceptance, by its, by its applauds, by any of that. It suffers long. It does not fail um, because fundamentally it has emptied itself of itself and is pouring into another whether they appreciate it or not. I wasn't committed to them because they deserve my commitment or deserve my time or energies or my life resources. That's not why I gave it to them and therefore it is not dependent upon receiving that back from them. They were not worthy of it to begin with. They do not have to become worthy of it to keep it. That's why love never fails. That's why love suffers long. It goes on in this, and there's a secondary aspect to this. Not only does love suffer long or is impatient, or is patient, but it is kind. And again, it is considerate of the other. Every one of these terms is going to take the attention off of me and put it upon others. It is going to demand something of me. 
and we understand the word kindness. We understand it because we all want it. We all want other people to be kind to us. <laughs> Please be kind to me. In my family, my wife on occasions um, will take control of the dinner table um, conversation. Um, and her words are, just be kind to one another. That's usually when my kids are bickering. Yes, they do do that. You thought it was just your kids, your family, but no, it's everywhere because we're all a bunch of dirty, rotten sinners saved by grace. Just be kind. Kind words. Be kind to one another. It's all we ask. Keep your mean thoughts out of your mouth and just let them rot in your heart <laughs> so we don't have to hear it. We understand kindness because we all want it. The challenge is that to be loving says, I'm going to give it. I'm going to be kind to those. And again, it is not based upon them deserving my kindness. It is not with an expectation of anything in return. It is the demand of I have God's love in me. Therefore, I am kind to all people, not just to pretty people, not just to rich people, not just to people who are like me, not just to people I get along with, but I am kind to men. Mankind. And that I am willing to seek to address even their sin, not by toleration, which is what we're going to discuss here in a little bit, by the kindest act, which is to rescue them from it. Not to leave them in a state of being cursed, but to seek to draw them out. The Old Testament prophets were pressed into service again and again and again. And you will see it in their writing and you can almost, as you read through them, can imagine or, or place it upon their countenance the great heartache that they had for their people because they knew the judgment that was to come upon them and, and they kept calling and calling and calling and calling for their people, not... Um, Oh, you guys are okay and I want you to feel good, but rather you guys are going to be judged. And it was the kindest words they could give. Please repent. Please, I beg you, repent. Moses goes to the extent of saying, Lord, um, you know, blot my name out of your book, but don't turn your back upon your people. That's love. I will suffer everything. And Paul reflects that same statement when, when he's going to make that, that statement that, oh, that I would be accursed that all Israel could be saved. And kindness moves us not to accept sin, but to take every effort to draw men out of it that they might be saved. For this is the kind act It is not about permissiveness. Don't take this word, kindness, and make it mean permissive. There's no permissiveness here. The greatest kindness I can do to my children is to discipline them without explanation sometimes. 
because I don't have time sometimes to explain. And they must obey because they recognize authority, period. And it's the kindest thing I can do to these little kids is not explain myself sometimes. And we grew up with that because I said so. How many of you heard that in your life? Come on. Because I said so. Usually from a parent, hopefully. Um, Maybe from a pastor, if you're in this church, you've heard that. Because I said so. Um, Because I don't tolerate even from teenagers. Um, Why? 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 They say, well, that's not kind, pastor. Yes, it is. And I'll explain to you why. When they are getting ready to engage in a very dangerous activity, and let's just put it in the realm of this little toddler, um, and I say, stop. They need to stop. Um, because if they take three more steps, they're in the middle of the street and a Mack truck is coming. I don't have time to explain why they should stop. They need to respond to that authority. And the way to train them to respond to that authority is by exercising it in that fashion earlier. Is it unkind? No. It is an act of kindness for them to understand I must obey whether I understand or not because this is the authority that God's put in my life and I'll wait to understand it later. First, I obey, then I'll understand. And that has been the model that we have tried in our family and and worked at, I'm going to obey it because Dad says so. I'll figure it out later. He'll help me figure it out later. But I must obey. And this must be the model that we have before Christ, before God. God is good, right? Do you guys believe that? Really? All right, so His commands are good, right? God loves you. His commands are good. He's a good God. He's not against you. He's for you. Sorry, I went into hillbilly there. Um, <laughs> I got a little bit of that still in me. Um, God is good. All right, if we believe God is good, if we believe that He loves us, then we have to just say, all right, God tells me to do this. Oh, man. And I don't have to work out the details of why and how and, and what is this, how does this fit into my... my uh, pneumatology or whatever, all those other ones. Um, How do I fit this in? No, I just obey. I'll figure it out later. The importance of why and, and what the circumstances were. But the kindest thing is for God to say, first of all, obey. Because you know I'm loving, kind, I'm your Father. Down the road you'll figure it out. And I'll lead you in that direction, but first you must obey. And so if you're sitting here saying, well, I'm going to get in the right relationship with God once I figure it all out, then whose authority are you under? Your own. And you don't don't understand the love of God. You don't believe Him to be good. You don't believe Him to love you. You don't believe Him to be kind. Or we would respond immediately by obedience, and then say, I'll work it out later why it was so important that I do this, but because I trust Him. And this is the issue that must be ingrained in our children um, from a very early age all the way through and even toward one another is a recognition that when we discover an individual who is living out, fleshing out the love of God, that we recognize that we may not always understand where this is going, we recognize biblical truth and say, I must obey it. 
And I'll grow into understanding it. There are a lot of things that my family, my parents uh, instructed me in that I, I really didn't understand really until I had my own kids. There were a lot of things they were doing. I was like, oh, I don't really need that. We don't really need and then I had my own kids. I was like, oh, no wonder. No wonder they wanted me to call them all the time and tell me where they were. Because they're sitting at home worrying. It wasn't because they were trying to control my life. It was because they were concerned about where I was and what was going on, if I was safe. Whether or not the car had many dents in it. They were concerned. They loved the car. No, they didn't love the car. Um, they were concerned about those kinds of things. It wasn't because they were trying to control my life, ruin my life, make me unhappy. It was because they wanted to make sure I was safe, that I was secure, that, I, that everything was going well. They were not trying to make things go bad. And I didn't really understand that until I had kids of my own. And so when we look at this idea of love is kind, the world says that's permissiveness and, and kindness, just whatever makes you happy, sweetie. And I hear that way too much. Whatever makes you happy. Here's what we, that is not kindness, that's cruelty. I say, what? How is that cruelty? Because frankly, the heart of man is sinful. Doesn't really know what it wants. Can you imagine God coming down in Jesus Christ, sitting there and saying, well, whatever makes you guys happy, we'll set that up as our plan. What makes men happy? They don't know. And you know what? Your children don't have any other idea either. Whatever makes you happy, sweetie. What a horrific thing to say. What an unkind thing to say. What an unloving thing to say. For the truth is what will bring joy. And so we are not permissive in our love any more than we are cruel in our love. Our kindness needs to recognize the great need that they have and draw them to its solution. And then there will be joy, unspeakable and full of glory. In the athletic realm, we see it extensively. The coach that lets the kids slide and just mess around is not being kind to them on game day, is he? When they get slaughtered by the other team because they are undisciplined and untrained and, and not conditioned. Is that a kind coach because they had fun during practice all week? Oh no. That's a cruel coach to set them up for failure. And yet we see that the world views that as loving. I want to make sure they like me. Parents, don't worry about whether your kids like you or not. Make sure you love them. With a kindness that sees beyond the immediate. Because when parents walk around and say, I want my kids to like me, they're thinking about who? Who? themselves. They're worrying about them. 
themselves. Not about what's best for their children. And that is not loving at all. Let's press on. Now we have a series of things that love is not. That love doesn't do. And you'll notice that every one of these demands of us humility. That we do not envy. Do not parade ourselves. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. And we've visited that term before, remember? Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And so love is, is, is a contradiction to this kind of arrogance of puffing myself up. And if you were out there engaging the world, and, and no wonder we end ourselves up in envy in, in this uh, self-aggrandizement that I'm going to look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me mentality. We have ingrained that into our young people, into our society. We see it around us. Look at me, look at me, look at me. It's evident in their speech. It's evident in their behavior. It's evident in their dress. It's, it's all about me. Look at me, look at me, look at me. And if someone's not looking at me, if you're looking at her instead of me, I'm envious of her. What has she got that I don't have? See, true love has nothing to envy because it expects nothing for itself. Does not parade itself, does not puff itself up, is not arrogant. Goes on, does not behave rudely, which is generally to drive others down so you can be raised up again. Does not seek its own. And all of these are just nuances of this whole idea that true love has Nothing to do with self-aggrandizement, self-interest. It is the pouring out of self-interest and, and enveloping yourself in the interest of others to such a degree that the world looks at you and says, do you care at all about yourself? And the answer is, I love them. I love you. The issue is that, and here's... here's and we're gonna I hate to give out too much from tonight. Here's what is going on in our churches today. You can't love others unless you love yourself first. I've heard it, and I've heard it, and I've heard it. For over 20 years of ministry, over 25 years of ministry, I've heard it. And it's godless. You can't love others unless you love yourself first. Really? How can you be zero self-interest if you have to be completely self-interested first? Explain that to me. Self-love and godly love are not in tandem with one another. They are in opposition to one another. It's not, here's the engine and here's the coal car. Oh, no. These are two very different things. Complete opposites. And I would contend that you cannot love yourself and love others. What God demands of you is that we reject our self-interest and, and there's no other way for you to 
truly sacrifice for another until you are ready to get to this place where my interests are not at heart. And therefore, I have nothing to envy because I've already esteemed others better than myself. And if I've already esteemed others better than myself, and then they show up to be better than me, how can I be envious of them? I already think of them as better than me. Then I can come on and say, great job. You're amazing. And I can mean it. Because I've already esteemed them better than myself. So when they really are better, prettier, faster, stronger, smarter, then I can enjoy it. Because I've already surrendered my esteem, granted it toward them, and extracted it from myself. Not self-deprecation. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm ugly. I'm stupid. I'm short. I'm tall. Do tall people do that? I don't know. You know, I'm pretty. Bummer. I don't know if they'll do that. But um, the Bible doesn't call this self-deprecation, but all of these say my focus isn't on me. I'm not envious because I enjoy seeing other people succeed. I'm not praying myself because it's not about me. I don't need to be on display. I'm not puffed up because it's not about me. It's not about being rude to others. I'm going to be kind in my speech and because and it, it's not about putting others down to elevate me. That's what rudeness really is, is I don't think about what your concerns are. Hey, give me the green beans. They never ask for the green beans. Usually it's, hey, hand over those cookies. That's rude. Why? Because they don't think about the other people. Instead of being pleasant and kind and considerate in their speech, they say, give me what I want. In my house, that pretty much got you in the corner. Didn't get you what you wanted. So love doesn't isn't rude. It doesn't seek its own And so the world and too many churches today are telling us, oh, love yourself, love yourself, love yourself so you can love others. And out of the overflow of your love for yourself that you'll be able to love people like you've never been able to love them before. What a dirty, rotten lie. Self-love from every example in the Scripture um, seems to be a bottomless pit. There is no overflowing of that cup. From Cain, poor me, poor me, poor me, all the way through the Scriptures, self-interested ones never fill up of their own interests. There's always something else. Verse 5 goes on. It says, Now, you are expressing it through all of these disin- this emptying of self-interest, and and now we have it going on with some other negatives. It says does not is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity. I want to handle these together. Um, the idea of provoking uh, and of jealousy of the idea that I'm going to get back at them, I'm going to get even, thinks no evil, doesn't want to engage in that, and Rejoices doesn't rejoice in iniquity. 
And this whole argument goes against the idea of permissiveness that somehow you can do whatever you want. I'm just going to be glad for you as long as you're happy, sweetie. I hope I'm really sending that home, that that's a bad thing to say, whatever makes you happy. Well, what if sin makes them happy? I enjoy beating people up. I enjoy murder. I enjoy stealing. It's fun. It's a real thrill. I mean, the cops are chasing you. Lead's flying around. I mean, you get home and your adrenaline's just through the roof. It's a high you've never had before. I love it. Whatever makes you happy, sweetie. Really? See, we are called upon here to not rejoice in iniquity. That this boundary of love is just that, is a boundary. And so I can love you, and as you participate in iniquity, I'm not going to rejoice in that, but rather I'm going to do the kind thing and say, oh, reject it, reject it, reject it. I'm going to use everything within my power to draw you out of that iniquity into righteousness. Not that I'm provoked that that you hurt me, you did injury to me. That is irrelevant because I've already emptied myself of self-interest. It's not about that you hurt me and now I'm going to get even with you. But rather, you've done what is wrong. Correct it. And this is kindness, is to draw people into righteousness. Not to enable them to continue in sin. And the world might look at that and in fact children and by the way, when I say children, don't think I'm just talking about preschoolers or elementary schoolers. Um, We have 30-year-olds that are children today. Because they never grew up and took responsibility for themselves. Children today you don't love me. Why? Because you always make me feel bad. Well, then stop doing bad. And that is loving. To seek to draw you out of sin toward righteousness. So in opposition to all of these negatives, we come to verse 6 and we're confronted with a positive that love rejoices in the truth. That that is where our joy lies. And we can love someone and when they're in sin, it is a heartache for us. And our kindness to them is never permissiveness, but always to draw them out of that sin into righteousness. This is the whole purpose of church discipline. Is that we won't even eat with such a one, the Bible tells us, under church discipline. We have that form. We The term today is excommunication, that we will not even eat with such a one, not because we are mean-spirited and we we hate them, but rather because we love them enough to do this kind act of extraordinary isolation with the hopes that they will get through their head the depth of evil they have gone into and the unrepentantness that is in their heart, that they might turn from their wicked ways and come into right fellowship with God and then right fellowship with His people. That is not an act of unkindness. The world would call it that. It might appear that way, but that is true kindness because it is built upon the truth. We rejoice in the truth. We then have a trilogy that love... I'm sorry, four quartet that love 
does, in addition to this rejoicing in truth. They're all tied to this idea of all things. And I want to preface this section by talking about this is not um, whatever things happen, but it is tied to that word truth. All things true. We'll bear into that. And that it is tied to rejoicing in the truth. Now that I rejoice in the truth, I can bear all things, I can believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. So whatever comes against me from this world, because I have the truth as my rock, as my foundation, as my fortress, because I'm rejoicing in that, and I have the love of God in my life, now I can engage this other stuff. And I can bear up against these things. I can hold form against them. I can believe no matter what in the truth because I know that it is immovable, insurmountable, unconquerable. Because I have that in my life and expressed through the love of God, evident here and at work here, now all these other things are easily handled. Now, are our feelings going to be all over the place? Yeah, but it's not going to move us. It's not going to weaken us in terms of, maybe I don't love God. Maybe I don't love them. Maybe I don't love the church. Maybe I don't love God's Word. We're going to be immovable in that. And so we can bear all things, believe all things, hope all things. And that hope isn't wishful thinking like we use the term, but a confident expectation. And we can endure. We can stand. And if you're in this context of Corinthians, if you're out there ministering by your own power and strength, and a little opposition comes against you, a little criticism, okay? Criticism comes at you. Uh, You're doing this by your own strength and according to your own abilities. You're going to crumble. You're just going to fold. Because in your mind, here's where it's going to go. These people are critical of my ministry. They're not thankful. They don't deserve it. I'm not going to do it anymore for them. Because you didn't do it out of love to begin with, you'll get to that point very, very quickly. You can't endure in ministry. Paul says, listen, if you want an enduring ministry in your church and minister in a loving fashion, you've got to minister the truth. Don't minister a lie that isn't kind. That's evil. That's unkind. That's cruel. To tell people lies and then they end up in eternity in hell because you wouldn't bother to hurt their feelings by telling them the truth. But how do we stand when we get opposition? Um, well, if I'm doing this by the power of the Holy Spirit and by doing it in love, um, you can criticize me all you want and it's not going to decimate my ministry. I'm not going to just fold and crumble and give up. Why? Because I didn't come here and do this because you deserved it to begin with. So the fact that you continue not to deserve it doesn't change the formula, does it? Just because you're not thankful for someone's ministry, um, well, you weren't thankful at the beginning either. If you're not thankful at the end, that's your problem, not that one ministering. They didn't minister to you because you were thankful people. 
so they're not going to stop ministering because you're unthankful people. If their ministry is born out of genuine love. It is unconditional. And so it endures. So our walk with God, our walk before the world endures and they can treat me badly, they can steal my stuff, they can slander my name, they can, they can do all these things against me, they can injure my body itself and I will stand. I will bear it. I'll continue to believe in the love of God and the truth of His Word. I will stand. Why? Not because of anything they've done, but contrary to that, to what God has done in me. This is the during nature. It's not because, oh, I have this wonderful feeling inside of me for this other person and so they can do anything they want to me and not even evil things and I'm just going to smile and say, well, I love them. Oh no, I'm going to stand against evil because love doesn't tolerate that. It bears up against it, which means that I'm loving you enough to send you to jail, maybe. If that's what the solution is, to get your mind wrapped around the fact that what you're doing is that wicked. Yes, sending people to jail could be kind. Just like having a lazy man go hungry is kind. If he has the capacity to work and won't do it, he should be hungry. To teach him a the lesson of God's word. Man doesn't eat, doesn't work, neither should he eat. So when we talk about kindness and love, don't use the world's ideas here. We come to God's word and, and we find what is truth is not what my feelings dictate to me and my guilt trips. What is truth is what this Bible says. And when I hold to it as an immovable force in my life, as the strength of my heart, now I can endure, believe, hope, stand. I can do it with rejoicing because regardless of the criticism that may come, I, and I can bear up underneath that criticism because I know that this is true. And so love isn't founded upon your will. It's not founded upon your feelings toward things. It is founded upon the truth of God's Word. We rejoice there and then it is expressed as we have received the love of God in our life, we are now able to reflect that love to others. And this God calls us to. And without this as the reason we minister, your ministry will be worthless. And if you're ministering in this church in whatever capacity, and we've tried to broaden those capacities, those areas of ministry, but if you're ministering here in, out of an, in, a, in a selfish, loving way, in a, in a natural manner, and yeah, you're going to be expecting to be thanked. You're going to burn out because people don't appreciate it. Not enough people showed up for my class. Um, and, and why should I put all that effort into it when it doesn't seem to make any any change in anyone's life um, because none of that is the motive for your ministry. People accepting the gospel is not the motive for our evangelism. Is it? It's because we love them. Not because they all accept it. And in the church, it's the same. I'll keep ministering God's word to you as long as God gives me breath. Not because you're listening to any of it. 
but because I love you and I know you need it. Whether you obey it or not is between you and your Savior. The measure of my ministry isn't your obedience. The measure of my ministry is faithfulness. And that's true of any ministry in this church. So this is the last Sunday of October, um, which for some weird reason in our nation has been set aside as Pastor Appreciation Month. Um, I don't need it. Why? It's not the premise of my ministry. Do you need to express it? Maybe. But the greatest measure of thankfulness, from what I can tell in God's Word, is obedience. You follow God, and what Paul says is, hey, that's my glory. Because my people walk in truth. That's what I rejoice in. You see, when we minister out of love, we don't expect, nor demand, nor require anything from those that we minister to. To sustain ministry out of love is a simple thing. It's natural. But to sustain ministry out of self-interest requires huge stroking by those that we minister to. And I want to make sure that the ministry is going on our church, whether on Wednesday nights or Thursday nights or Sunday morning, Sunday night, during the week, um, whenever you're out there ministering one to another and to uh, this world, oh, that it would be done, born out of this kind of love, then it will endure no matter what. Because it's not based upon its results in others. It's based upon my commitment to others as a reflection of God's commitment to me. I can be faithfully ministering to others because God has faithfully ministered to me. Let's pray.